Hey, my name's Alex, and welcome to the Alex Listens podcast. Um, this is, I guess this is actually part of the podcast, um, obviously, but it's also on YouTube. Maybe you're watching it on YouTube in video form. Um, if you're not watching it on YouTube and you're listening, um, that's, that's okay. Maybe it's a bit strange because there's a camera that I'm looking at and the camera kind of, at least for me, changes how the podcast actually feels because, you know, previously I haven't had a video element, but people were like, Alex, we want to see your face. So here's my face. Um, hi. Um, so today is the 24th, 25th, 24th, 24th of March. Um, my sixth, fifth day of self-isolation. Um, things are changing pretty rapidly in the world. Uh, lockdown in the UK, um, over here in Australia, some more positive news. We have, um, some great social welfare, uh, increases for students and for people seeking jobs and that kind of stuff. So that's, that's really good to hear. Um, but that's not so much what this episode is about. Um, so if you don't know, um, Alex Listens is a podcast about nothing and philosophy and uh, ethics and race and identity um, and that kind of stuff. Um, and today I've chosen to do an episode on something that I find to be very interesting, um, very challenging uh, and something that we have thought about. When I say we, I mean you know, human beings that we've thought about probably forever. Um, and it is the issue of hedonism. Um, okay. So the hedonist. So, okay. So I guess I should begin by defining hedonism. Um, so hedonism is a, a kind of philosophical belief system or doctrine, which holds at its core, the maximizing of, uh, pleasure, feelings of pleasure, feelings of happiness, um, satisfaction, validation, reward, um, I guess, you know, positive mental states. The hedonist argues that what is valuable in this life are experiences of pleasure. What is disvaluable in this life or what is not valuable are experiences of displeasure. Um, many people would agree with this. Uh, many people would rather live a life of pleasure than a life of pain. Um, many people would rather uh, see a friend and have a nice time with them than, um, you know, have an, have an, an accident of some kind. Um, obviously, some people have different preferences, you know, um, some people derive a lot of pleasure from pain. And that's, that's where, you know, the line gets a bit blurry. Um, that's something that I'll talk about later. Um, but to begin, we need to establish a strong kind of foundational understanding of what hedonism is. Um, and yeah, I guess just to reiterate, just so just so we have this kind of working definition of hedonism, it is the belief that what is of value is some, what it, the things that are valuable are the things that bring us pleasure. 
That is hedonism in its most basic form. Okay, so um, there are two hedonists, two philosophers who wrote a lot about hedonism that I'm going to mention. Um, unfortunately, they're both white men, um, uh, and I, I haven't. Um, I am most familiar with their work because that is the work that is taught and that's a poor justification and I really ought to diversify um, my knowledge of hedonism um, beyond, you know, what is taught in... I learned about hedonism at University College London um, where Jeremy Bentham, who is one of the hedonists I'm going to talk about, his body is actually in a box so you can see it in a glass. Well, I guess it's like a case. Um, an auto icon. He requested that he be preserved, which is, uh, yeah, uh, you, I guess you you have to wonder what that means, what that says about his hedonism. But anyway, so we begin with Jeremy Bentham. Um, okay, so Jeremy Bentham. So there are various strains of hedonism. That this isn't so important for the way that I want to navigate this uh, this episode. But you know, there's eth- ethical hedonism. There's kind of preference hedonism, um, whatever. Um, I guess Jeremy Bentham would be considered a an ethical hedonist. Um, uh, but, you know, some, some things that he says would kind of, uh, you know, move into preference hedonism. And I'll just, I'll define these two. So I guess, at least for me, for me, ethical hedonism refers to um, the valuing of things which kind of are right, things which are good are more valuable than things which are bad. Um, And so this kind of refers to some kind of objective idea of what is good and what is bad. And And for the ethical hedonist, things are more valuable that are good than than bad. Um, and so we ought to pursue things which are good, even though they might not bring us as much pleasure. Um, as much, as many sensations of pleasure, maybe, because, you know, maybe in, maybe there is some wider scheme of, you know, mass pleasure of the world of, uh, you know, extending the longevity of the earth by not over-consuming, that kind of thinking. Um, so that's ethical hedonism. On the other hand, we have preference hedonism. Um in its most basic form, preference hedonism is a claim about, you know, it's kind of a more, at least I think, a more egoistic, egocentric, narcissistic claim, a narcissistic kind of belief that um, each person is, obviously, each person is entitled to their um, their preferences. I like certain music. I'm actually wearing a t-shirt from my favorite band, Tool. Um, so, like, many people don't like Tool. Many of my friends don't like Tool. Um, and, you know, there's not much I can do about that apart from continuing to play Tool around them in the hopes that, you know, they'll change. But the point is that the preference hedonist will say, pursue what, what, brings, what you think brings you pleasure. And that is what is good. Okay, so now we have a kind of, now we have a, a, 
a basis through which we can understand Jeremy Bentham, who is one of the kind of founding um, founding philosophers in, in uh, I guess, you know, hedonism. Um, in recent Anglo, Anglo hedonism. Um, okay, so what did Bentham actually think? So Bentham had this thing called the Felicific Calculus. Um, and the Felicific Calculus is pretty weird, but I guess it's something that has come up in many conversations that I've had with people. It's an idea that's come up quite a lot. Um, so the, the Felicific Calculus is... It's a calculus because it tries to attribute value to things which bring more pleasure. Um, so here I have lip balm because I was recently on a plane and my lips got really dry. And so I have some lip balm. Let's say when I use this lip balm, um, it brings me positive, it brings me plus three pleasure. Let's say when I use this as lip balm, this is, you know, a kind of a, a pen I use for drawing. When I use this as lip balm, it brings me negative three pleasure. Dis so I, I'll, I'll keep, so obviously negative three displeasure, but negative three pleasure. So under the philosophic calculus, I should use this because like positive three, I, I'm gaining, I'm having a pleasurable, ex a more pleasurable interaction with the world. I shouldn't use this as lip balm. Um, this wasn't product placement, but Burt's Bees, if you want to sponsor me, um, I'm pretty sure it's vegan and I'm pretty sure, where's it made? Made in the USA. Uh, um, okay. Uh, yeah. So we have um, we have this idea of a calculus. That's a very simple form. The example I gave of the lip balm. Um, obviously, you know, it'd be silly to use a a text or a pen as lip balm. Um, it makes sense to use lip balm as lip balm. Um, but then things get more complicated. Um, what if, what if, uh, I, so, so it seems like it's kind of, it's kind of easy to add a value to this. Obviously the number, the numbering is kind of arbitrary. Like, how do I know this is an issue with the philosophic calculus? How do, like, what does positive three pleasure even mean? Like maybe positive three pleasure for me is positive 15 pleasure for you. Um, yeah, like how, how do we, obviously I think this, I think, I don't actually know, but it feels like this has some kind of net positive impact on my lips. Um, yeah, maybe, I don't know. My lips are feeling pretty dry. Let's see. Um, uh, yeah. Wow. Positive three pleasure. Ah, amazing. Burt's bees. Um, cool. Um, okay. So there we have the basic, the philosophic calculus. We should prefer things which have a positive impact on us. Um, now, 
Let's say I have two friends. Friend A. Friend B. Let's say both friend A and friend B say, Hey, Alex, let's hang out. Obviously, this can't happen now because social isolation. But let's say in the far distant future, when we've got a vaccine for coronavirus, friend A says, Hey, Alex, what are you doing on Thursday at three o'clock? And at the exact same time, friend B says, Hey, Alex, what are you doing on Thursday at three o'clock? Under the philosophic calculus, I need to think about how much pleasure each social interaction is going to bring me. Um, that's, that's a very strange way of engaging with the world. I need to think about intensity. How strong is the pleasure? Um, duration. How long will it last? Are there going to be you know, long-lasting lessons that I will be able to draw from either interaction? Um, you know, is there certainty? Am I going to be certain that seeing person A over person B is going to be better for me? Um, you know, is it going to be, should I value, I guess, you know, there isn't an issue of time really, because I'm seeing at the same, I'm seeing them, um, at the same time, but you know, is person A going to give me something that's going to bring me pleasure in one year? Is person B going to give me something that's going to bring me pleasure in 15 minutes? Um, yeah. Like, and also, like, how wide-reaching are the the implications of the pleasure? So, like, if person A is a philosopher that I really admire and person B is someone that I see all the time, presumably seeing person A is going to be a more wise decision because, you know, maybe I'll learn some really important life lessons, whereas, you know, I, I see person B all the time. And so it doesn't matter if I don't see them one time. But how... The, the issue is, how the... How do we attribute a number value to this? This is an issue with Jeremy Bentham's hedonism. He thinks that, you know, it's it's actually a realistic thing to do, to be able to say, I'm going to do this because I know that it's going to bring me, I don't know, plus 10 pleasure. What the hell does that mean? How do I even know that it's going to bring me plus 10 pleasure? Um, one thing that you should listen to is one of my first... Uh, interviews, which was with a philosopher of mind called um, L.A. Paul. She's from Yale. And I spoke to her about the philosophy of experiencing time. Um, And Laurie, L.A. Paul, the L stands for Laurie. um, I think it's the third interview I did, maybe the second, I'm not sure. Um, But her claim is that we don't actually know what anything is going to do for us until we experience it. And so the whole philosophic calculus, trying to figure out whether interaction A or interaction B, regardless of what we're interacting with, whether it's a lip balm thing or a human being, we won't actually have a very accurate way of measuring how this is going to impact us. Um, And that's a problem. Um, And that's why this this is one issue that I have with Jeremy Bentham's utilitarian, uh, Jeremy, well, yeah, it is, it is a form of utilitarianism, um, maximizing something and the hedonists want to maximize pleasure. Um, okay. So there we have one of the kind of founding ideas of modern hedonism. Then there's this guy called John Stuart Mill, um, who was 
kind of raised by Jeremy Bentham. He was raised to be this kind of... He was, you know, he didn't go to university. um, But, you know, from a very young age, he was indoctrinated with this very, very strict moral code. Um, He was actually... uh, you know, a, a really decent and reasonable guy. He was pro-equality. He was, you know, he, he wanted to, um, he wanted universities to admit both men and women. Um, obviously, at, at that time, I'm not sure that there was, uh, I'm not sure if identity politics was even a thing, but um, yeah, University College London um, which is where uh, Jeremy Bentham was one of the founders of that place. It was one of the first, if not the first university in the UK to... It's it's secular, one thing. Um, and another thing, it was one of the first universities to widely um, accept women. Um, and, you know, one of the motivations for this was... Uh, well, I, I, it's, a weird, it's a weird thing to say, but... You know, this was driven by the idea that what is going to be best for society, what is going to be better for the world, what is going to, you know, contribute to an overall sense of well-being is if we have equality. Um, Obviously. I mean, obviously. Obviously. Anyone who disagrees, um, yeah, (laughs) I I can't swear because this is on YouTube, but uh, yeah, send me an email. Um, contact at alex.co um, okay um, so John Stuart Mill now Mill comes along and he says okay Jeremy um, this philosophic calculus thing you know plus 15 pleasure minus 15 pleasure it's pretty weird it's a pretty weird way of thinking about the world um, and he tries to redefine the 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 ways in which we should think about prioritizing one experience over another um and mill says we ought to split uh experiences of pleasure into two different categories higher pleasures and lower pleasures um and there's a kind of arrogance and elitism and yeah, there's a, there's a real elitism built into this. So, um, Mill says uh, we should a higher pleasure is something like music, something which really requires cognitive engagement and which really kind of stimulates our cognitive faculties. And so, Mill kind of moved hedonism into this really kind of psychological realm. Mill's claim is that we should... Things which are... Things which will maximize our well-being are things which maximally require the interaction of our cognitive faculties. So things which require a lot of brain activity, presumably music, um, you know, learning an instrument, classical music, tool, you know, um... Yeah, um, but also, uh, you know, things like reading, literature, books, um, um, what else? Uh, maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe that, that kind of stuff. Um, 
And then lower pleasures. This is where it's re- he get, Mill's stuff is really weird. Mill says that we shouldn't pursue things. We shouldn't pursue kind of um, bodily pleasures. So sensory pleasures. So Mill was against sex as a kind of, you know, recreational or so- something that we did because it felt good. He, th- he thought that it was a lower pleasure. You know, it's not... He thinks it's not maximizing the use of our cognitive faculties. It's different from music. Um, and other things like, I, I don't know, I guess he'd be against like simple board games like um, Noughts and Crosses or something. He would say a game like chess requires immense, you know, requires immense uh, engagement with your brain, of your brain, and Noughts and Crosses requires minimal engagement you know there are only so many things you can do but then there's a challenge to this kind of higher and lower binary um what if what if i'm someone who really projects kind of stories of fantasy and really embellishes the game of noughts and crosses and make what if i make noughts and crosses something that is as complex as chess no, okay, maybe not as com- that, that's a bad a bad example, but as complex as you know a piece of fiction. So for every X I draw, maybe I imagine a really sophisticated story, um, and yeah, I mean like that that sounds kind of reasonable. Why can't you make things? Why can't you make lower ple- lower pleasures really complex so that they demand a lot more cognitive effort? And I guess what what John Stuart Mill would say is that when you do that. Like, he'd say, okay, that's fine, but you're not playing noughts and crosses anymore. You're moving into the realm of higher pleasures. So if you're doing that, then cool, no problem. Um, so yeah, maybe that, that's a kind of, you know, count, argument, counter-argument structure. Um, okay. Ah, whoa. Um, sorry, if you're listening on the podcast, I just picked up a glass of water and the coaster was stuck to it and it kind of frightened me. Um, all right. So now we've got, um, okay. So one, one thing that I didn't really, one path that I didn't really go down, which I actually think is an important path to go down is the path of what constitutes pleasure. Um, or what constitutes well-being, uh, and and this is a very kind of cloudy and nebulous and turbid area. Um, so, John Stuart Mill, I guess, would say that what is pleasurable is the brain state or the kind of outcome of the brain state. So, I'm thirsty. I pick up my glass, I drink some water, there is, you know, a sensation of water entering my body, I'm aware that water has entered my body or whatever, and there is a resultant brain state, you know, more hydrated, more water in my blood, whatever. Um, Mill says that that is the thing that's pleasurable, the experience of the thing, not the thing itself. So, water in itself isn't 
something that is pleasurable. There is nothing, there is nothing about water which, which makes it pleasurable. It's just a thing. But, you know, when there is a sentient, conscious thing that is able to engage with it and draw certain things from it, then we attribute it value. Um, or, okay, maybe I just kind of contradicted myself. I said that we attribute it value, it being water. I think I don't think that's what Mill would say. Mill would say that we attribute the resultant mental state value. But obviously, water is something that facilitates that mental state. So we learn that water is something, I guess, that is valuable. In in it's valuable because it elicits a certain feeling from us. Um, and so, when we're choosing between drinking water and drinking something that that doesn't make us feel as good, we choose water because we should value water more because it produces a greater you know, it produces a richer experience, or it produces a more pleasurable experience, or it produces a more, it allows us to more successfully engage with the world, because we aren't as dehydrated, um, even though I feel extremely dehydrated at the moment, and I keep drinking water. Okay, so, um, but then, like, this is where, yeah, this is the psychology of pleasure, the phenomenology of pleasure um, is is weird, really, really weird. Because one question that I have really struggled to think about and to ask myself is: Would there be, would there be anything? Would we be able to say that anything was valuable if there wasn't a human, if there wasn't a conscious thing to experience it? Um, so can we? Can we even say that things are pleasurable or not if there is no, um, yeah, if there is no, like, vessel to experience it? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think we can say that water is valuable. Like, if I'm not here to drink it, and if you're not here to drink it, and if nothing is here to drink it, but... Maybe water's not a good example because, you know, where there's water, often there's life. Um, maybe something like, uh, I don't know, like sand. Maybe that's not, maybe dirt, dust, um, atoms. Like, are atoms valuable? Do atoms, is there anything good about atoms? Um, as in, is there anything good about atoms if we're not there to be composed of them. And if we're not there to appreciate how atoms make up everything that we enjoy. Um, this is where the phenomenology of pleasure gets really weird. Like, how far do you go? Where do you draw the line? Where is it? Yeah, like, it's really weird to talk about atoms in terms of whether or not they they bring us pleasure or not. Um, I guess they do. But you know, as Mill would say, and I think I kind of agree with Mill, it's the experience of pleasure that is valuable. Okay, now, something else that is very important for us to think about is what are we talking about when we say something is of pleasure or something contributes to well-being? 
this is this is another this is another issue um when when i like something i i would like when anyone likes something presumably they want to do it um let's say i like i like drawing um drawing fortunately is something that doesn't cause harm to anyone um directly obviously you know paper comes from trees cutting trees down is bad um but like you know what yeah okay we can't go we can't go spiraling off into eco criticism um so i like drawing um and i i draw presumably and this is actually what i believe the more that i'm able to draw so long as drawing is something that brings me pleasure the better my life will be obviously this can't be universe universalizable universal universe this can't be made universal because not everyone <laughs> wow day 5 of self isolation and i'm feeling the cognitive toll um uh not everyone enjoys drawing um and so this is we need to kind of we need to understand an important element of hedonism i think most of the time we can most of the time when we talk about whether something is pleasurable or not we are talking about whether something is pleasurable or not for a particular person so for me if i like drawing and i get to draw a lot that's really great we should say that i've had a good life if i die you know whenever and i've had a lot of experiences of drawing we should say that i've had a good life if you don't like drawing and you've had a lot of experiences of drawing and drawing doesn't bring you pleasure we should say that you haven't had as good a life as me if you haven't been able to pursue um when okay so as good when i say you haven't had as good a life i mean you haven't had as good a life for you for you as an experiencing individual this is independent of the social consequences of your behavior and stuff obviously that will change the equation um if you're someone who's done a lot of drawing but you hate drawing and it really brings you immense displeasure but your drawing is kind of admired by billions of people and you kind of change all of these people's lives obviously your life has been we should say that you know you've had an incredibly beneficial impact on many people's lives and we would be very how weird is it talk we would be this is like my weird philosophy training that is coming out um but yeah i i hope you kind of see the path that i'm going down um hedonism okay i'll ask you a question should we think about hedonism about what is good for the individual as someone who is experiencing those pleasures so if we are trying to to determine whether or not someone has had a good life do we just think about how many 
do we just ask them, have they been able to do a lot of what brings them pleasure? If their answer is yes, we say they've had a good life for them, not for anyone else, for them. If their answer is no, they haven't had a good life for them. But like the artist who creates all of this beautiful work but hates making art, they've had a good life for everyone else, but they haven't had a good life for themselves. This is a weird kind of, a weird part of hedonism. It's hard to think about, you know, and what's more important? Is it more important for me to have experiences of pleasure, well-being, to have, you know, a um, kind of robust, uh, to, yeah, to, to be to be having many experiences of pleasure? Or is it more important for the world to be, or many people to be, should I prioritize the well-being of others over my own? That artist, that troubled artist who really hates making art, should they keep making art, even though it ruins their life, if it's going to make a thousand people's lives better? And this is what utilitarian what utilitarianism, hedonism is a strain of utilitarianism. This is what utilitarianism aims. This is what it's looking at. It's looking at these kinds of questions. Um, we return here to the, the age old problem, the trolley problem. Um, there's a, I don't know why it's called, I guess. Yeah. I don't know why it's called a trolley problem. In, in Australia, it should be called something else. The train problem. There's a train going down train tracks towards a worker. The worker has noise-canceling headphones on. Can't hear anything. Um, there's nothing you can do to prevent the worker from being hit by the train. Um, although, you look around you and you notice that there's a lever... You can pull the lever and divert the train. It will go onto another set of tracks, but it will kill five workers if you pull the lever. And those five workers have noise cancelling headphones on as well, so there's nothing they can do to get out of the way of the train. What do you do? Do you let do you let one person die, or do you pull the lever and kill five? The utilitarian would say. Oh, maybe it's the other way around. Whoops. As in maybe let me let me clarify this. Ooh. Cause trolley problem. Um Okay, yeah, it's the other way around. So sorry. Five the train is going towards five people, you pull the lever, it diverts and goes towards one. That makes a lot more sense. Um the utilitarian would say you pull the lever every time. You want to maximize the well-being of as many people as possible. Five lives is more valuable than one. So then, when we think about the troubled artist, um, if you don't, if you don't really understand my tro- trolley problem scenario, um, you should look it up um, or look at a photo, or maybe I'll put a photo. Um, yeah, maybe I'll put a photo in the video, but I'm not sure if it will let me. Um, I mean, it obviously it will let me. I don't know what I'm saying. Um, okay, so when we return to the troubled artist, 
do we do we expect or should we encourage the artist to make this work that's going to benefit thousands if it's at the expense of their own well-being if it's going to cost them their life um what do you think send me a message like actually send me a message on instagram at alex listens shit um or uh on send me an email um, contact at alex.co. Um, also, yeah, what, like, like this video if you like it. I'm not finished, but I'll just, <laughs> I should probably tell you this at the end. Um, yeah. What's great, what's great about having a podcast, apart from it being this ultimate pursuit of hedonism, um, is that you get to learn how to talk to someone who's not there. <laughs> well, I guess you're kind of there, but um, anyway, let's return to hedonism. I'm just going to be... I'm going to pursue some pleasure and drink some water. Okay. So. Two last things that I'd like to talk about. Um, at least I think it's... I don't have notes or anything. Um, so I apologize if... Actually, no, I don't apologize. But this is kind of how I like to do the podcast. If this is the first thing you're watching, I tend to kind of take it where I feel. Um, Okay. So I guess we need to think about, we need to ask ourselves, are there some things which under no circumstances um, are there some things which should be prohibited under all, in all circumstances? Um, many. I, I'm sure you could form your own list. Various crimes. Um, maybe, maybe uh, environmental damage. Uh, maybe genocide. Uh, maybe racism. Um what if here is here is a challenge that is often posed to the hedonist what if someone draws immense pleasure from something that is really really wicked really nasty um what if someone really likes going to the amazon and deforesting what if that brings someone if we return to that um philosophic calculus what if deforesting the amazon brings person A, John, no, we'll call him Jeff, like Jeff Bezos. What if Jeff, a bad guy, really, really enjoys cutting down forests and it brings him plus 10 million units of pleasure? Um, do we, like, should we let Jeff do that? No. Okay. What if Jeff really likes going into people's gardens and ripping them to pieces. Um, only, only ri- he only does that to rich people. Um, what if Jeff goes into rich people's gardens and destroys... Okay, he destroys a quarter of their garden, but they can afford to fix it. Um, should Jeff be punished for that? What do you think? Um, this... 
this is where hedonism gets really interesting on trying to say certain behavior is acceptable and certain behavior is unacceptable. Um, if you like, I can do an entire episode on this, the question of uh, wicked and immoral behavior and how we should think about it. Um, so if you want that, if you want an episode like that, let me know. Um, please comment on YouTube, message me on Instagram, email. Um, okay. Um, but I have, I have like, I have a system that I've developed. Um, and I wrote an essay developing this system and I'll post the essay on my website. There should be a link in the bio. Um, my website, www.alex.co. Um, not to be confused with alex.com, which is a maths website. Um, yeah. So my system, I'll keep it brief because, um, I'm trying to limit <laughs> the length of these episodes and I'm having great difficulty doing that. My system argues that we should value things we should value things which maximize the freedom of everyone over things which don't because freedom is something which underlies every single act. So if Jeff really likes ravaging people's gardens, Jeff can only do that if he has a certain amount of freedom. If, if Jeff wants to do something that is taking away the kind of freedom that allows him to ravage those people's gardens, we shouldn't, we should disvalue that kind of behavior. We should prioritize behavior which maximizes freedom. Um, yeah. Okay. I think, I think without, without overcomplicating, that is how I think about hedonism. I think the behaviors, the acts, those things which are valuable are those things which contribute to the freedom of the individual because at its core, it is that freedom which allows the, the mental states, which are experience of, experiences of pleasure to happen. Without that kind of freedom, we wouldn't have experiences of pleasure whatsoever. There would be nothing. Presumably, there would be very little. Imagine if everything that you derived meaning from and and pleasure from and all those things which contribute, contributed to your well-being. Imagine if they were taken away from you. I guess now in the time of coronavirus, we're kind of experiencing that. We have a lot taken away from us in self-isolation. We want it back. We want that freedom back. Um... And now is a time of negotiating. You know, if we pursue that freedom, there's going to be huge consequences. People's lives. Are, people will die if we continue to socialize in a way that brings us the highest levels of freedom. Um, highest levels of pleasure. So, yeah, we ought to prioritize behaviors which maximize freedom over those which don't. And in the time in the times of coronavirus, that means staying indoors, doing the things that can bring us freedom while we are indoors until it is a reasonable enough time to go back into the world such that our behavior won't stifle the freedom of others. So if I want to go and see a friend, I shouldn't do that now because I might interact with them and then they might see a grandparent and then something awful might happen. 
Um, and you know, why, who knows who's sick, who know, uh, testing. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's probably, that's probably it. That's probably all. Um, cool. That was really fun. I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed that. Um, I feel, yeah. And see, like the hedonist would say, ah, you've just, you've just one hedonism because I just said that I really enjoyed that. It, it felt really great. I feel pretty good right now. Um, and that's something that I value and it contributes to my well-being. And so I'm going to keep doing it. Um, and, and as far as I know, my podcast isn't stifling the freedom of anyone. Um, presumably it's bringing you some kind of, it's contributing to your well-being somehow. Um, yeah, cool. Okay. Well, I'm doing an episode every day for the next two weeks. This is my second day. Um, so yeah, I'll be doing another episode tomorrow. If you have any suggestions, let me know. Um, and yeah, visit my website. There's some more stuff on there. www.alex.co. Um, thanks for listening. This has been really fun. Um, and I guess last thing, uh, if you want to support the podcast, uh, you can, um, you can do so via Patreon. There'll be a link down below. Um, also a link on my website. Thank you. See you tomorrow. Uh, keep listening to yourself and to the world and to the podcast. (laughs) Okay. Bye.